0: This morning I wore the same sweater I wore last Sunday, and so I took it off. Um, Most of you probably wouldn't remember any of that, but this is my self-conscious spirit convicting me. Um, Just by way of announcement, um, I think the most pertinent in terms of dates would be uh, the women's retreat Um, Standing firm in the faith, and the speaker for that retreat is Elisa Childers, who I've had the privilege to interview, Um, wonderful apologist and writer, speaker. Um, So that is February 25th through the 26th, um, and you can find more information on the website or feel free to come talk to myself or Elise Wilkes or anyone related to the church. And um, I think that'll be a wonderful time for the women. The church universal has gone through such fascinating history. We think of the the first century Christians and believers going out in great boldness, facing extreme opposition, not finding many who resonated with them. But through difficult and challenging missionary journeys and and through steadfast resolve by the the Spirit of God, that little fledgling community began to grow. Under attack from uh, unceasing persecution and and, and nevertheless growing. Persecuted uh, with extreme prejudice by emperors and leaders like Nero and, and Diocletian. That early church survived the attempts to end the faith. And this seed of martyr's blood, as Tertullian called it, eventually bore abundant fruit in the conversion of the empire, growing spiritually and numerically. Then we think of the age of the Christian empire... Constantine making Christianity the official religion of the Roman state with its positives and its negatives. Then the Middle Ages and the, and the church splits between East and West and the East moving to Moscow as the center of Eastern Orthodoxy while the West is, is eventually falling to the barbarians. And it was the writings of Augustine grounding the believers with a reset vision that served so well in that time period. And eventually, you have the rise of the church and the Roman Empire begins to mass baptize the pagan world, giving too much authority to the Pope and to Rome. As one writer put it, the church gained the world but lost its soul Empty piety and religiosity ruled those days. But true believers were hungry to return to the Word of God and not just the institution of the church. This led to the Reformation, largely sparked by Luther the mobilization of of Protestantism, and you have uh, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, Anabaptist. It broke the back of the centralized church and gave us religious pluralism. It gave us uh, denominations. It separated the church and the state for the most part. And and the Reformation led to the age of reason and, and revival where the question was asked, Who needs God? Man can accomplish on his own. And secularism began to spread on its own. Then Christians in in despair turned to prayer and to the, the preaching of the Word. And the result was a series of evangelical revivals, mostly from Pietism and Methodism and the Great Awakening. And by preaching and personal conversions, evangelicals tried to restore God to public life. And there was some success, but ultimately, secularism has, from a worldly perspective, triumphed. Now, if you were to go back and look at all of those different eras of time, you will find that the church was strongest when it held to its core doctrines. And by strongest, I do not mean that the time when the church held the most power or had the most people. But by strongest, I mean when the church was acting in the way that they were called to act. And it was because of those core doctrines, whether it was Augustine or Luther or uh, the Puritans or George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards or David Livingston. The doctrines of the faith that come straight from the scriptures served to ground the work of preaching and evangelism and discipleship and missions as the gospel spread across the world. These are the foundations that give us a biblical worldview. These are the foundations that help us to see the world for what it is, to see the church for who she is, to see our neighbor for who they are. And they will serve us well if we take the time to look at them and consider them from the Scriptures, that they may lead us into Doxology, that they may lead us to praising and glorifying God and giving thanks to Him and seeking to serve His purposes out of the abundance with which He has blessed us. But I must say all this with a word of warning that many of these doctrines have been abused over the years, they have been used as weapons to inflict pain on people, which is the exact opposite of what they are intended to do. And so prayerfully, over the next several weeks, as we dig into these, I hope that we walk away encouraged and edified. I hope that we walk away again transformed by the power of God, by the power of the Word of God, that it would serve us well as we seek to grow in knowledge and in grace. Why don't we pray and ask that God would help us in these efforts together. Father, as Rachel prayed earlier, we ask that your spirit would reveal to us from your word exactly what he intends for us to see. What is your intention for us, Lord? What is your plan for us? What is it that you want us to know and understand, that we may respond to it. For, Father, your word, we know, does not return void. And your word tells us about who we are and tells us about who you are. And so we come to it, seeking to know better. Not just knowledge that would puff us up, but, Father, knowledge, wisdom, insight that would drive us to our knees, that would challenge us, that would convict us. Help us see these things anew with your eyes, from your perspective, for your glory. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we find ourselves looking at this doctrine of what we call radical corruption, or you may have heard the term total depravity. Now, you have heard me say this before, but there can be no good news if there is not bad news first. The gospel is not received and understood unless and until the person understands their spiritual condition. Because the current philosophy of the day is that people are inherently good. I know that you've heard this probably within the last few days. I even saw this in a a major news story over the last week or so. Someone was in a bad situation, and they said in an interview, I believe that people are inherently good, and so I trusted that they would do the right thing. And guess what? They didn't. Now, we have... Discuss this as we have done this look into Genesis, and if you're confused as to why we stopped Genesis, uh, let me explain. So the first eleven chapters is really uh, uh, into the nations. You know, remember we talked about the seventy, and then it, and then this moves into the nation of Israel, and then into the age of the church. And so I felt like we were getting to a transition point in Genesis, and I thought I don't really want to do the Israel part just yet, so. Perhaps we'll come back to it and finish the last 700 sermons on that one at another point in time. But you see, this, this is so uh, apt for us today, having done this series on Genesis, because this feeds right into this. And, and, and a lot of this came from uh, my interviewing Daryl Strawberry last week and recognizing that these core doctrines are what help us understand the world that we live in, ourselves, the nature of God, and they give us tremendous insight that ground us as Christians in the things we need to know and understand. And so we are understanding Genesis and we are understanding the fallen nature of man, but but it's not just that man sins, it is that man is corrupt at his core. Man is radically corrupt, so much so that we cannot take even the smallest steps toward God unless he first intervenes. Again, this all originates for us in Genesis, where Adam and Eve are tempted to to doubt the goodness of God, to, to doubt his word. And to be like God. And the consequences of their sin was death. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Right? The pronouncement. This warning was not just about physical death. Though of course we know it was that as well. But it was also about spiritual death. And we see that in in Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden. And we see that in, in their attempt to cover their shame and their nakedness themselves. And we see that in the, in, the, in the shifting of blame that takes place in the immediate aftermath. Genesis is pointing to the fact that, that Adam and Eve were as unable to love and rightly respond to God as a corpse is unable to respond to attempts at resuscitation. This is a totally foreign concept to the world. This idea that we are dead in sin. This is a foreign concept to even many believers. Sinners? Sure. But unable to do anything on our own? No way. The Bible tells us we're sinners, but but I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and he's a sinner and she's a sinner. We're all sinners. And the key is to... Try to do better. Be a better you. Be true to who you are. Right? Because deep down in your core, you are a child of God. All of humanity are are God's children. And you have to go deep down inside and find that reality of who you are, that identity of who you are in yourself, and then live it out. This is the philosophy of the day. And it, is, it, is, it makes me upset because it is, it's garbage. This is what Joel Osteen preaches, that, that you are this wonderful thing that God loves overwhelmingly and he want, what all he wants for you is for you to discover your self-worth. And he wants you to live your best life now. And all of your problems in your life are centered on rejecting that philosophy and not living this out. The problem here is that there are elements of truth hidden in this totally heretical, unbiblical message. And it makes it very dangerous. The Bible nowhere says that message. But this is what the the philosophy of the age Of the day looks like and sounds like. And all of this philosophy seeks, all it seeks to do is glorify the self. The self is the ultimate. Because it may be what God wants, but if you are the one who accomplishes this work, then you are your own hero. And pray tell me, what purpose is Christ in this narrative? Was he just the ultimate model of living out this new reality? And what significance is his death upon the cross? But you see, this is what passes for evangelicalism today. It is not good news. It is is literally sending people to hell with a lie in their hand, as Robert Murray McShane would say. It is a form of tower building. I will make my own way to God. Because all of this fails to see the human condition for what it is. For what God tells us it is from his word. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask that you turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sorry, I don't have the... Oh, there it is, 1159. 1159, if you have the ESV Pew Bible in front of you. Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath rather than, uh, sorry, ra- uh, like the rest of mankind. Not children of God. Not children of God, as, as the world would tell you. That's a special reservation for those who are in Christ Jesus, children of God, but rather children of wrath. Children of wrath describes humanity. And our first point from this teaching in Ephesians is that the sinner is dead in trespasses as, and sins, just as we saw in the Genesis account, dead in trespasses, dead in sin, in, in the entire History of humanity, there have only been three basic views of human nature apart from God's grace it is that man is well, man is sick, or man is dead. The first is what you would call the optimist, right? Optimists may disagree on the degree of the health of the human condition. But ultimately, things are getting better and better because there is basically nothing wrong with humanity. The second view is what we call the realist. They would say, if the optimist is correct, then why do we still have wars and disease and starvation and poverty? And they would be correct. And since all of those things still exist, the realist recognizes there is something basically wrong with human nature. But for them, the situation is not hopeless. It may be bad. It may be even desperate, as one writer notes, but not hopeless. People are still around. We still exist. We haven't obliterated ourselves from the planet, so there must still be hope. And the third view is Paul's view. It's the biblical view, which is that man is neither sick nor well. He is dead, at least so far as his relationship to God is concerned. It's like a spiritual corpse. Man is unable to make a single move toward God or even to respond to God unless God first Brings this spiritually dead corpse to life. And this is exactly what Paul says God does. Second, the sinner actively practices evil. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says essentially, even though spiritually dead, the sinner actively practices evil. Paul says we followed the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So the sinner is dead to God and alive to wickedness. It's the the zombie idea. Zombie being someone who is dead but still active. And I'm not talking about you all here. Though some have suggested it. I won't use names. It's a grotesque image, this this zombie idea. But it's very much an accurate description of what is happening. This is everyone apart from Christ. This is everyone without Christ before he came to us. It's the living dead. Third, the sinner is enslaved, the sinner is enslaved. Essentially, we are in bondage to the world and the flesh and the devil in our natural state. We are enslaved to the world because we follow the course of the world, as Paul says in verse 2. We think the way the world thinks. We act the way the world acts. We are enslaved to the flesh Because our natural desire is to carry out the desires of the body and the mind, verse 3. We are enslaved to the devil because we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now in work, in the sons of disobedience. And never so much as when we are unaware of his presence. Fourth, the sinner is by nature an object of God's wrath an object of God's wrath. The worst thing about our sinful condition apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ is that we are objects of God's wrath. This is super popular to believe, isn't it? This, this is all the rage, this, this, these ideas. You will win friends and influence people to no extent, This reminds me of um, the pastor that I worked for in Sydney. His mentor in the UK was a man by the name of Dick Lucas, um, who's sort of contemporaries with uh, Lloyd-Jones and John Stott. And I remember one time Dick Lucas said, uh, in in, in, uh, explaining to his congregation the response he gets to messages like this, and people say, Mr. Lucas, you're just trying to frighten us. And he said, I wish I could frighten you. The problem is you won't listen to me. But this is the reality, right? This should be terrifying to us. But if sin is as bad as the Bible declares it to be, nothing is more reasonable than that the wrath of holy God should rise against it. That has, it's the logical conclusion. If you look at the nature of God, the holiness of God, and the nature of mankind in his wickedness and his abject rejection of God, the Bible says over and over again that God will judge, that vengeance belongs to him, that he will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10 says. In fact, in Jonathan Edwards' famous description of a sinner in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that one description of mankind as a spider, that God is dangling over the fire in preparation for destruction. In fact, when people would hear this sermon, they would cry out for mercy. Before he even got to the end of the sermon, which was the good news, but they were in such response to the fear of a holy, righteous God and the the recognition of their iniquity and the recognition of their sinful nature and the recognition of the choices that they've made and the way that they speak, they were desperate for Mercy. Well, let's make a, a quick transition here and we'll look at Romans chapter 3 where Paul summarizes the condition of every human being apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3 verses, we'll really look at 10 and 11 specifically, but 9 to 20 if you want to go back and look at this again, that's 11.18 in your pew Bible. And, and, and in, this, in Romans chapter 3, Paul According to Paul, the the, the Jews are no better off than the Gentiles, and vice versa. All are alike under sin, and all are this subject to the wrath and, and final judgment of Almighty God. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Just for clarity, this is a devastating picture. This is a devastating picture. It portrays human beings as unable to do even a single thing, either to please or to understand or to seek God. Sin corrupts the heart and the mind and the will. There is no one righteous. It doesn't mean that we are just a little bit less righteous than what we need to be. To please God and somehow make our way into heaven. It means, from God's perspective, that sinners have no righteousness at all. And we have to understand this from God's perspective because if we look at it from a human perspective, then we will conclude that at least some people are good because they are better than what we think we have observed in others or perhaps in ourselves. There's a story of um a man who went to a a, a prison sentencing uh He was sitting with a, a group of people in the courtroom and they were reading out all the convictions against this man uh, and he just began to weep and weep and weep and the man next to him said did he are you were you offended? Did you do something? Has he hurt you in some way How, why are you so?" upset over this. And the man said, no, no, no. It's, the shame is that I see myself in him. I see myself in this convicted felon. Our problem at this point is that we think of the good that we can do we think of our righteousness and we think that our righteousness is the same as God's righteousness when actually they are quite different we assume that by accumulating human goodness that we can please God but this would be like trying to use monopoly money to pay your bills it is unacceptable our own righteousness in God's economy, the, the kingdom economy, is not legal tender. This is what Paul says that Israel attempted to do in Romans 10. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Righteousness. That is, Israel wanted to go to God. They wanted God to accept their own currency rather than the currency that Christ alone could provide them, that the grace of of Yahweh could provide them. And this is not just Israel's problem. This is a humanity problem. As Paul goes on to say, all have turned away. They have together become worthless there is no one who does good, not even one, verse 12. Second, the sinful mind does not understand, none understands. The second pronouncement that Paul makes about human beings in their sin is that no one underst- <clears throat> understands spiritual things. And here we are talking about we're talking about spiritual perception and, and, and not human knowledge. I'll never forget when I was working construction with uh, men who were coming out of uh, it's sort of a rehabilitation program for alcohol and drug abuse. And one of the men that I was working with had spent time in prison. And he told me that people that knew their Bibles the best and had the most head knowledge about God were people in prison. And that really Left an impact on me, it struck me. And it wasn't that they had gained spiritual insight or had been converted, which of course some had, but many had just read and studied and had head knowledge with no perception, no spiritual sight to, to understand what they were reading. A dead person living, reading the, the living word of God, so to speak. It's quite a strange image if you think about it. But the best commentary comes uh, on this comes from 1 Corinthians. Where in Corinth, in, in the Greek mind, wisdom was king. Wisdom was the everything. And Paul says he did not try to impress them with wisdom, but rather determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he explains his decision in two ways. First... Human wisdom has shown itself bankrupt so far as coming to know God, uh, as far as it is related to knowing God. Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Even the philosopher's knew that they were unable to discover God by philosophy. And the second way Paul explains his decision to know nothing among the Greeks but Christ crucified is the statement that spiritual things cannot be known um, only, that they can only be known by God's Spirit. They, They can't be outside revelation. They can't be uh, uh, just from accumulating knowledge and, and reading and, and, and growing in knowledge. that That is not how you discern spiritual things. You only discern spiritual things by the Spirit of God. And so he writes, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And, and there are people who are not believers who who can articulate the Christian faith better than many believers. But if you ask them what they think of what they know, and they will say it's silly. It doesn't make any sense. It's just another Mesopotamian myth or a religious system to help people cope because they are not spiritual and they are unable to understand spiritual things. They are unable to understand Christianity. Finally, the captive will. None seeks God. I think like the people hearing Jonathan Edwards, the the thought of a holy God judging them is too terrifying. Why would someone seek that God? Why would you bark up that tree? They're more likely to hide from him than to seek him out earnestly. And so according to Romans 3, no one unaided by God has any righteousness by which to lay claim upon God, has any true understanding of God, or seeks God. But what we do not have and cannot, and have not done, God has done for those who are being saved. I have essentially given you a lot of bad news over a long period of time. There's several passages of Scripture that we call the big butts of Scripture, Because Paul understood that the bad news had to come first. That humanity or the early church needed to hear about their condition first or to be reminded of who they were at first. That's why these are found in the early passages in Ephesians 2 and Romans 3. But listen to what the rest of the Ephesians passage says. But... God, these are some of the greatest words in Scripture, you were this, but God, you don't get to have the last word, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up uh, and raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We ran from him, but the hound of heaven, as Spurgeon refers to him, pursued us relentlessly. And if God had not pursued us, we would have been lost. And second, God gave us understanding, and he did it by making us alive in Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit as a result of which our eyes were open to see things from a spiritual perspective we are able to things to discern and see the spiritual realities this does not mean that we understand perfectly but what we do understand about god we now truly understand in the sense that we believe accordingly third god has given us a righteousness that we did not Have and could never have had on our own because it's not ours, it's his righteousness, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the ground of our salvation. Now, I'm not sure what your reaction or your response is to all of this. Perhaps you have questions, that's good. If you have questions feel free to come talk to me perhaps you aren't there yet you're struggling with this reality you still think the way the world thinks that there's this inherent goodness to mankind again that's okay too we want you to wrestle with these things Maybe you are in total agreement with everything that I have said, and, and you're saying, I've heard all this before. This is not new and maybe not interesting. Why does it cause you not to rejoice? Why does the good news not cause you to rejoice? Does it make your heart fill with, with gladness, with joy, with, with love, with appreciation? Not because you got this and others didn't. Do you see? It's the opposite of pride. It's what we talked about last week with the Tower of Babel. The way up is down. This requires humility. The ability to say, I didn't do anything. It's all God's good and gracious work. And I can actually rest secure in that. Because if it's my work, it won't last. It won't stand. It cannot stand the test of time. It it won't stand persecution. Because then it's mine. And I'm extremely fallible as we've just spent the last 30 minutes discussing. But you can stand secure in that it is his good, gracious work. Praise God. For his rescuing and and, and resuscitating not sick people, but dead people who were once slaves to sin, dead to God, but now alive in Christ. Let's pray. Father, perhaps there was too much of an imbalance if we spend so much time in bad news and not enough in good news. But these are the realities we could spend the whole rest of the day my prayers that we do thinking about these things. Recognizing who we are, where we come from, what our natural state is, and then praising you glorifying you, rejoicing with one another in the goodness of what you have done for us, not in what we have done for ourselves, that we have an answer to the philosophy of this day, that we do not save ourselves, but it is only God who saves by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So, Father, May the rest of this morning, the rest of this week, the rest of all of our days be lived in thanksgiving and gratitude and praise and glory for what you have done. For we pray this in Christ's name.